Welcome to the Music Business Podcast. Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends, tactics, and insights from some of the world's brightest minds in music. I'm Jordan Williams of EQT Management. And I'm Sam Heisel from Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Music Business Podcast. Today, we're super excited to have Harrison Remler, the COO of Visionary Music Group. Visionary Music Group is one of the most innovative and forward-thinking management companies in the game. They help break and develop Logic, who's arguably one of the most important and best rappers of our generation. Uh, beyond that, they also manage Chelsea Cutler, John Bellion, Quinn 92, uh, amongst a handful of other different artists on their roster. Uh, Harrison was recently named to Forbes 30 Under 30. Uh, he's a true executor, a true business operator. And I think being able to dive deep into the story of how he first started working for free with Visionary Music Group as a college student back in the day when Logic was selling 50 tickets, uh, all the way from there through today where Logic is selling out arenas internationally. I think this is a super incredible episode filled with tons of actionable stories and advice. What do you think, Jordan? Yeah, I think, I mean, you really hit it on the nail there. I also think that we get to dive deeper into what it's like to be, one, a young COO, a young executive, but also a young industry professional and how to really guide through the industry to make a name for yourself by the time you hit 30 years old. Um, So I thought that was really inspiring for me, and I think it will be for our listeners, too. For sure. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Harrison, what's good, bro? Welcome to the show. What's going on, man? It's good to uh, good to see you both. Good, good to, to see you too, you. man. Good to meet you too. And Sam, working on some projects together, which I'm stoked on. Yeah, man, um, it's been exciting. Um, no, I mean, we're really, this is an episode we've definitely been looking forward to. I think uh, what you've been able to build with Visionary Music Group is incredible. So I think um, for starters, obviously, we're going to dive into a lot of different topics. But I mean, just hearing the story firsthand, I mean, how you got involved, Um We'll start there. Yeah. Sure. So I was a 18-year-old college freshman. I was uh, I was in my backyard with – I used to play competitive baseball, and I was with one of my teammates, a Jewish kid. He was a Catholic kid, but we really hit it off. We've been traveling <laughs> the country for, for summers um, playing baseball together. We both love music. Long story short, in our backyard, we were like, you know, fuck it. Let's throw a concert, right? Um we had no idea about what a promoter was. We had no idea about how concerts worked. Um, all we knew is that we wanted to throw a concert. Um, we put on a show at the Canal Room, the last all-ages show in the history of the Canal Room. And we did something really innovative that, that I think sparked a lot. We, we weren't the coolest kids, but we knew a lot of the coolest kids. So we asked the 10 coolest kids we know to invite all their Facebook friends to this event. So before you know it, there's 48,000 people invited to this event. <laughs> there's 600 tickets, right? Wow. So we, we, we go on the internet. We start reaching out ambitiously to, to Macklemore, to Big Sean. We don't know how offers work. We, end right. up, we, we, we put a bill, um, Air, a uh, band from Massachusetts, and then uh, Cam Meekins, actually, uh, and, and Skizzy Mars were on it, um, and a, a pop group called uh, Upper West. And we, uh, we put the show on at the Canal Room, uh, it grossed like $12,000. I had no idea what a promoter was. So I just said, you know, the two headliners, you get 35% and the two openers, you get 15%. Yeah. Um, biggest check any of them had ever seen, literally <laughs> dispersed in cash the night of. Um, and I was like, yo, this was really cool. It was really exciting. It was really challenging. Um, ironically, the manager of Cam Meekins at the time, his name is Tom Maffei. 
He's a uh, pretty established manager in LA. He tried to sue us over like three hundred dollars, and what? I was at and I and more ironically, I was at Jimmy Kimmel, and uh, I oversee all of our execution of live events. So when it comes to any TV performances, touring, um, Logic had this idea where he wanted to start on Hollywood Boulevard with Guillermo, uh, perform Black Spider Man, and pick up strangers that were really dancers. And in the middle of the performance, the rehearsal, this guy pulls back with a vengeance. And it's fucking Tom Maffei. And it was cool, like full circle. I'm like, this fucking guy trying to fuck up the rehearsal. And then later, like two years later, we uh, we were on a call together. Um, and we sort of called it truce, but it was funny. So throw that concert. I'm like, this is awesome. Um, at the time, I was ironically interning for Dennis Leary's production company, the, the actor well-known for Rescue Me. So mm. I had met his daughter in college. I went to Vassar College. And I was like, hey, can I get an internship? She was like, sure, go work for my dad's company. I was literally reading scripts. Um, I knew nothing about film. I would fall asleep at the job. And respectfully, I was like, these guys manage Dennis. It can't be that hard. Mm -hmm. You know, let me figure out how to get in the music business. Um, so go back to school that year and I'm putting my brain to it. How do I, how do I enter the business? Um, I'm seeing all these kids at, at this prestigious school that I went to, you know, three, nine, five, four O's. They can't get a job. They're miserable chasing econ, um, chasing finance. And, and I went to a really liberal school. So, so it was even at the extent where a lot of people were so, they got so trapped, um, were so, they dove so deep into the liberal world of, you know, whether it be political science, philosophy, psychology, they were, they were growing and maturing, but like they weren't really prepared for the professional world. Um, and I don't think it was to their, I think they were just in the moment of being a liberal arts student. Um, so I was like, screw it. Um, I was actually playing college baseball at the time. I pitched like maybe four innings my freshman year. I was like, this ain't going to work out, but like my, <laughs> my, my dad will kill me if I quit. So I was like, there's a place, I was like, I need to throw concerts not to make money, but to make connections to latch onto a bigger team. So I was mm -hmm. like, where in the world are there a bunch of kids who live on the internet, a bunch of kids who have money and a bunch of kids who have nothing to do? Private prep schools. So <laughs> there are all these prep schools in the Northeast. Uh, the first concert we threw was at Choate Rosemary Hall where John F. Kennedy went. Yeah. Um, we threw, so I threw probably 30 concerts with me and, and my buddy at the time. He was involved and then he sort of stepped away and it was really just me. Um, the way it would work, I'd reach out to all these artists on the blog scene. Um, this song is sick, good music all day, um, two dope boys. And, and one of them was Logic and, and Chris Saru, who I work for um, now, who found a visionary and my big brother, mentor, you know, best friend. Um, and I'd call them up and I'd say, you know, I've got 2000 bucks in the Hill School in Pennsylvania. Who wants to come? I'll pay you in full before. I had no idea the idea of a deposit, anything. <laughs> So I threw these concerts. The only person I knew who knew how to run sound was a DJ named DJ Vinny Bags, who managed a pizzeria in uh, Mineola. Um, he was a friend of a friend. And we, we did this thing. So I would just pay out the artist in full. I'd pay my buddy who did sound in full. We, I would call these schools. And I said I had a fake agency with all these artists I could promise. Um, and my, my word was everything. Um, but I knew the goal was to always latch onto something bigger. So... I think probably like a year into it, Chris um, put it together that I was from Long Island. He was from Long Island and he was like, I'm looking for some help. I was like, yo, I'll fucking, I'll, I'll, I'll kiss the floor where you guys walk. Like this is the perfect <laughs> scenario of logic. Who's like, literally you meet the guy in, in, in 20, 
I met him maybe 2011, 2012. I booked him at a show in Brooklyn um, at like for like 50 people. Um, I think on cue was the headliner. And uh, then we went on to play Barclays, which is crazy. So it's like surreal. I yeah. think I paid like 300 bucks cash. Um, <laughs> so I, I say, I'll do whatever I want. Uh, I'll do whatever you guys need, whatever you want. Um, I'm in school at the time. I'm playing baseball. But luckily during the summer, he was hitting the road for the first time. So he did his first tour. Um, Chris was like, I'm going to do the first 10 dates of the tour. And then you're going to go out there and tour manage. Showed up in Dallas. You know, I thought it was going to be, you know, tour life, hard knock life. You know what I mean? Like from the documentary, it's like crazy wild shit. Show up. Logic sits me down. He goes, man, we're here to work. If you don't want to work, you could leave the tour. I said, I'm about it. Let's get into it. Um, we didn't party. We didn't drink. We didn't, you know, we didn't do anything. We were super focused on on growing his brand and growing this growing visionary, right? So we did uh, two summers in a row, two sold out tours. I was 19. I could barely even get backstage at some of the That's venues. About to say, yeah. Um, it was crazy though, man. Like SOBs. I knew nothing about tour management, nothing about settling. I, I taught myself everything. Um, um, I'm like historically a terrible driver within the crew. Um, and somehow I didn't, we didn't crash, no accidents, no nothing. Um, and th- that was it. And, and during the school year, Chris was like, do you want to continue working with me? I was like, sure, man, I'll, I'll, I'll do anything. So it was that point sophomore year where I would go to class, but I wouldn't really pay attention. I, right. I was, you know, pretty much his intern assistant, you know, blind right. copied on a lot of emails, just learning how the business was going. Right. Um, I released a bunch of Logic songs from, you know, my school cafeteria. I remember the day Logic signed to Def Jam. Um, I was in the school, like, campus center, and there were, like, five Asian kids there, and I was, like, yelling and screaming, and nobody had any idea. <laughs> um, everybody at my school doubted me. Um, they all thought it was a big joke. I actually booked Logic at Vassar, but I had my own show at a big school in Connecticut um, that I had to cover. Um, and it, w- it was scary, man. You know, where I'm from in Long Island, everybody wants to be a doctor, finance, or go the easy route. Um, my parents thought I was nuts, but like 18 months in, they started to really support it. Um, and it was like mid-sophomore year that I was like, I'm going all in. So, you know, screw school. Right. I would go to school. Um, I would graduate, but I would do whatever I could to sort of finesse it, right? So some of my professors were so, so, so supportive to the point Mm -hmm. where I'm forever grateful for them. And some of them were, you know, so incredibly not supportive that it was almost insulting. Um, I remember we had booked one of our, John Bellion, who we started working with about like a year into me working with Visionary, I think, um, if not sooner, he was booked for Wireless Festival in London, which I'm sure you know of. Um, You guys have, have played there a bunch. And I remember I brought the the flyer to my my locker room in, in baseball. And my assistant baseball coach was like, you know, this must be a fluke. Like, no way this is ever going to really happen. Um, so quit playing baseball my senior year, went all in on this. Don't really have many friends from college. Um, close friends. I have buddies. Um, but they all knew I was grinding and they didn't really understand it. Um, and I took a risk, worked for free for three years and started working like 10 minutes after I graduated. You know, um, it's a crazy story. And, and and Chris is just somebody that, you know, he's the hardest working person I know. And I think he was shocked to meet somebody who was who could go at it equally as hard. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were just obsessed with the idea of free music and, and building, you know, a real touring base, a real fan base. And then you know, having commercial record success, but we knew we had to work towards that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at the initial kind of vision that you guys had for the company versus where it is today, I mean, obviously the vision I'm sure evolved over time, but 
you compare what it is today versus what you guys initially kind of set out to do in the upfront? Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's really interesting. We talk about it a lot. Originally, it was Logic and Taya Bali, who was a rapper. Um, yeah. That we also represented. So it was like, let's build this rap empire. Um, Logic, you know, technically, I think he's, you know, one of the most skilled rappers on earth, bar for bar. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, just speaking bluntly. Um, then we signed John Bellion, who's a pop kid, but we take the hip hop model, something that had never been done. I think the closest thing to it, in my opinion, was Mike Posner, um, but he wasn't really consistent enough to achieve what we achieved. Right. Um, now you look at our, our our roster, it's seven artists. It's Logic, John Bellion, Quinn 92, Chelsea Cutler, Jeremy Zucker, AOK, and Logic's producer, um, Six, who's evolving into his own brand and, and yeah. own artist. Um, it's a pop company now. Yeah. Um, so that's the biggest shock to me. It was like, you know, we used to really look up to the TDEs, sort of, you know, uh, the MMG brand. Right. Um, but now it's, you know, Visionary has become more of its own little culture, lifestyle, and, and really pop-leaning musically, which is, right. which is interesting. Um, Why do you think that happens? I think... You know, in the beginning, we had Logic and John, and we didn't want to sign anything for a bunch of years, and everyone thought we were crazy. Um, but you get big-eyed, right? That's what Chris always says. It's like, it's really easy to get caught in the moment and have something pop and pick up six artists. But we were two kids. Right. Um, I was 20. You know, Chris, was he's three years older than me. We were working out of his basement. Um, we were working out of public libraries. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, the W Hotel in Union Square was my office, right? Yeah, so right. we had no resources. Yeah. Um, so it would be a disservice to sign another artist because right. we didn't have enough time. And, and our goal was tunnel vision on both of them. Right. Um, Just crush but, it for them. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. what they deserve. We, you know, people, people don't really know. John Billion had the opportunity to sign with every single manager, um, in the business, like some of the most legendary managers from Chris, wow. Chris Lighty to L.A. Reid. Um, but he chose working with Chris because of, uh, you know, Chris, Chris was so transparent and honest when they first met. He said, I don't have time. Um, and I think they developed a relationship. And, and months later, John had called him at like 3 a.m. and like this like godly moment. Um, and he was like, I want you to manage me. Um, Logic was in a similar situation, right? Because I feel like, you know, when he started popping, at least from what I saw, he had opportunities to work with a lot of people. And I remember when he literally posted the Visionary Music Group like logo, like I'm going with Visionary Music Group. And everybody was in the comments like, who's Visionary Music Group? <laughs> yeah, because you know, the, the, DM, the, the DMV is such an intimate, um, intimate but important part of hip hop culture, right? right? It's like this, uh, it's the small community of very impactful artists, you know, your Wale's, um, Logic, Phil Day, they were really having a moment. But Logic trusted in Chris and, and right. you know, I think he had an existing relationship with some some DMV legends at the time. But, uh, you know, that was a big thing we had to really instill in Logic was you got to think globally, right? You know, your right. city's going to get behind you, mm-hmm. um, but don't think that you have to start in your city. So yeah. it was like it was crazy. He was getting these fans from all over the world. Yeah. But the, the DMV community was they were behind him. They were obviously, his, you know, his biggest market, but still the culture wasn't really. Right. Fully respecting him. Um, I mean, Gaithersburg is also an interesting place to be from. Too, very. In Maryland. Very. Like to say I'm a rapper from Gaithersburg. Like there's not too many people that do that anyway. So. Why do you say? Um, I just think at least when, when Logic was coming up, he was like the only person I knew from Gaithersburg that was rapping. Like I heard of a bunch of, I heard of some other people, but it was mostly like through him doing showcases. You know what I'm saying? So. Um, yeah, it's crazy, man. We uh we just reunited Wu-Tang Clan on that Wu-Tang Forever track. And uh, I talked, Ghostface called me and I was chasing down his vocals and he was like, yo man, 
y'all are really doing it. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you logic, psychological opened for me. Yeah, I was psychological. Like, I was man. like, that's crazy. Yeah, I was like, yeah. that was crazy, man. So, um, forgot it. I forgot that was his name before those, it was uh, psychological. It, that, that was pretty surreal. Like, you know, to be, to work with an artist who, um, reunited the most iconic group, you know, personally, I think in, in hip hop history. Yeah. Um, it came down to the wire and there was actually a last minute, uh, Def Jam caught an interpolation, I believe, uh, I, I don't quote me on this. I think it was, uh, Method Man interpolated a RZA lyric and we actually had to clear RZA himself on his own song, which was <laughs> what a nightmare. But I mean, that's what we do, right? So yeah, yeah. Logic actually, uh, you know, I, I called him. I was like, should we ask him to change the lyric? He was like, you know, that's like asking fucking LeBron to wear a different number, right? That's like the most disrespectful <laughs> shit. I said, I said, I said, cool, I'll call you tomorrow to be clear. Um, but, you know, if, if you, we have an amazing sample agent, um, Deborah Manis Gardner, and then she's become one of my best friends. And, and when people really care about you as a person, they'll go the extra mile. So when, it, yeah. you know, it's Friday night and we catch that and she clears it by Saturday at like 11 a.m., you know, she cares about me. She cares about Logic. Um, Logic is super heavily involved in, in the sample process. Obviously, you know, being a true hip hop artist, he's been the core of a lot of his production um, and he won't sacrifice anything for it. So, you know, we've chased samples across the world, yeah. Um, yeah. literally. Um, I don't even know what was the original question. How it evolved? Yeah, it was uh now now it's now it's really it's a management group uh with a lot of our focus on pop, but I think that's where a lot of the young artists are going. I think you're going to see this little indie pop lane sort of explode. Right. Um obviously hip hop's having a massive moment. Makes total sense with the uh the void in rock music. Um I think Tyler the Creator started it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have your Uzis, you have your, you know, the whole SoundCloud era that's really really taking the void of punk rock right now. Yeah. Um but you're going to see this indie pop led by, you know, the likes of Billie Eilish and Chelsea Cutler and Jeremy Zucker. Um that's really going to explode, I think on, you know, on all platforms. Um it's an easy listen. It's very vulnerable um and it's extremely relatable. Yeah. That's awesome. So I think it's uh, when you look back on the development of Logic, I think one thing that stands out, obviously, I mean, starting very early on, being persistent over long periods of time. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people tend to not stick around long enough or not actually lay the foundation. They see stuff not taking off. Oh, we're going to find a different artist. I mean, I think um, the question there is, I mean, like, what were some of the inflection points or some of the core elements of the foundation that you really feel you helped build that enabled the success that, that Logic has had? Yeah, I think it's like, it's the perfect combination, right? You have an artist, Logic, who, you know, built his brand on being the hardest working artist, communicating yeah. with every single fan. Um, he would literally reply to every single fan, meet every single fan. He used to Ustream his uh, he studio to, sessions. Yep, he used to Ustream yeah. in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he actually he didn't drink for like six years, and there's one photo of him Ustreaming while drinking a beer, and I always send it to him randomly. <laughs> now, 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 now he drinks and enjoys life. But um, he said during the last Ustream that I saw that he was going to be on the BET Awards the next year. He's the and he's, he, he he and uh, he and Chris are the epitome of the law of attraction. So whatever these uh, guys want, they get right. So right. BET Cipher. Um, XXL freshman cover, sold out tours, Madison Square Garden sold out, the Grammys, the VMAs. I mean, literally whatever this guy wants. He just sold his book. He sold a movie. Um, he's working on a second book. What, what, whatever he wants, he achieves. And I think it's tunnel vision. I think people underestimate how hard it is to be an, to be a successful artist, right? Yeah. You would know. Um, that there's five at the top, right? Or really three, you know, Kendrick, Cole. And um, and Drake, right? And you look at ath athletes, it's even tougher than an athlete. Um, yeah. 
you got 25 top players in the NBA, but then you got, you know, 32 teams, 12 players each, whatever that is. Um, being a successful artist is, is nearly impossible. Um, and it's not getting caught up in the moment of one good mixtape because that's what you always see. It's like these artists have these moments. They blow up with them. They, they have an internet moment with a mixtape and then they go MIA for 18 months, right? Yeah. Consistency was everything. So project after project, tour after tour, miserable tour into a somewhat fun tour, into a <laughs> more lavish tour, yeah, into yeah, yeah. now like nine trucks and 10 buses and like Damn. basketball hoops and studio buses <laughs> and whatever you want. But people don't really want to put in that. People don't want to put in that work, right? Um, yeah. I think they're they're afraid to. Um, they feel vulnerable about that. Vulnerable out there. They don't want to invest in themselves. Um, their team doesn't want to invest in them. What what people don't realize, Logic didn't pay me to be a tour manager for two and a half years. I never asked for a dime. I never got a per diem. I didn't know what a per diem was. Mm. Um, I was just like, man, I, I believe in you. And, right. and you know, I was fortunate enough to go to college, um, and there was food there. You know what I mean? And, right. and at the venues, you know, you could always scrap. So. Yeah. Um, it's consistency and tunnel vision. I think a lot of artists, they, they have an internet moment with their, their first mixtape or their debut, um, and they get caught in it and don't put enough music out. And uh, we were lucky enough. It was year after year, project tour, project tour, project tour. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Jordan, you wanted to dive a little bit into the COO dynamic. Yeah, so COO is is sort of like a, a mystified, I feel like, role at a lot of different companies. And it's not really the same at a lot of different companies. So so what does it mean, one, do you think, at a, at a music company to be a COO, but also at Visionary Music Group? Uh, what are the, some of the things that that you think are specific to your role there in addition to music industry? Sure. I think for like the first two and a half years, I was trying to be a mini Chris. And I remember yeah. we had a moment... He had texted me. I was with my ex-girlfriend at the time. I was living at home. And he was like, let's make some time this week to talk through the issues we're having. And I'm like, oh, shit, man. <laughs> this is it. Like, this is it. So we go to a – we met up at a – you know, he lived at home in Long Island. I lived at home. We met at a neutral site, I would say. You know, it was a fucking – a bar that actually a kid from my town, he owns it. It's a good bar. Um, <laughs> and he sat – you know, we sat down and he was like, look, this isn't going to work if we try to do the same thing, right? Yeah. Um, you're obviously at the time things weren't on that big of a level, but it was simple. It was like you're very organized, you're very on top of email, you're very um, task driven, and you know he was always the artist ear, creative, yeah. executive producing all the music. Right. Um, so he was like, we need to really play to our strengths. So he literally gave me a list of like twelve things to improve on and like six things to really focus on, and I fell into that role of COO. Um, the job of the COO is to get it done. Um, yeah. It's that simple. I think whatever the artist and whatever Chris wants, whatever they collaborate on a marketing strategy or, or anything, I have to get it done. It's, it's that simple, right? So yeah. I have to operate every single day at the highest level. There's no room for error. Um, it's been the biggest challenge of my life, bringing things like, you know, partnering with a suicide prevention lifeline and taking a hundred um, suicide survivors and trauma survivors on stage yeah. um, and communicating to MTV what that means to have those people there, right? Logic could have just went up there with Alessia and Khalid and done the song and had some cool graphics, yeah. uh, but that's not what we do. Um, we doubled it on the Grammys, bringing 300 people. Mm. Um, simple stuff like, uh, you know, I was 19 years old and he wanted, Logic wanted to have a band at Jimmy Kimmel. I never, I didn't, I didn't know what backline was, right? So I just figured it out and the, the people at Jimmy Kimmel are, are some of my best friends now. I know all mm -hmm. the security guards by first name. Um, <laughs> I, I execute every single day. So w whether it's literally the task of 
you know, we're moving offices right now. So as Chris closes the deal on hopefully our real, on our main office, I'm looking for our subleases. So it's things like that to literally, um, hey, Harrison, we want to reunite immigrant families on the VMAs. Uh, we don't want to hire any a- actors. Find us 200 Latino families now. Um, you have three days, go. So you got three days. It's, it's, it's execution. So <laughs> and at the end of the day, when it goes to, to black and white, um, Chris does all the creative 30,000 foot vision, um, marketing ideas and strategy. And then I come in and, and we brainstorm back and forth and I just get it done. Um, I don't touch the creative. It's not my place in any way. Right. Um, but people really underestimate there's a difference between trying to get something done and actually getting it done. We put, uh, on logic's third album, everybody, we, it was really the last time you can maximize anything on iTunes. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the idea of the deluxe album was always interesting to us. Right. Cause you look at like 1990s, you would go to your best buys, your FYEs, you, you would grab both. You would buy the, the, the standard and the deluxe, right? The deluxe usually had a bonus track or something intriguing at that time that you couldn't get right. because there was no internet presence. So we said, what are we going to do to drive people to buy uh, two copies on iTunes? So we had this 40-minute documentary. Logic's videographers had done uh, super raw, super... Um, wasn't In no way was it amateur, but they weren't a full production company, right? So I get handed this documentary... We're sitting in a boardroom at Def Jam and we go, we're attaching this to a album on iTunes. We're calling it deluxe album. So I'm thinking the biggest issue is going to be um, getting it in, getting in the iTunes system. Obviously, you know, as a manager, it's a clunky um, situation when you want to sort of innovate, when you want to add anything different, right. whether it's animated art or whatever. Dealing with that really um, right now. So yeah. we... We contact iTunes. They're all for it. Um, much the credit to Faisal Durrani, who was the GM at Def Jam at the time. He was he really understood the value of Logic's fans buying two and what a number one could mean. But to me, I get handed a documentary. I have two weeks to produce, clear 85 logos, clear 100 people and all the sounds. Mm-hmm. So me and my team just, you know, literally made a Google sheet from everybody from Nike to DC comics to PlayStation. And and luckily all those relationships that really never went anywhere monetarily, but all those like touch points of like, Hey, I knew someone at Marvel who could get me to DC comics, who could get me to Stanley's team that paid off. Right. So, um, I, I cleared, I think it was like 95% of the logos. We missed a few, we couldn't get. (laughs) Um, and then from a, Sonic perspective, we got it all done. We got all our people signed off. Um, it came down to the wire to another extent, but I, you know, I, I wouldn't put it up to chance. So I actually sent a videographer, Justin Fleischer, who's an amazing, hardworking um, videographer, photographer, creative who works for Logic now, to Bitmax, the uh, the post production house of Universal. Yeah, and I literally said, "Stay there until it's finished." Um, and it's tasks like that, that, that you think are impossible, that the, my job is to get it done. Right. Right. Um, because these guys come up with this incredible product. And the last thing I want to do is say, can't make it happen. That's not the business we're in. For sure. For right. Sure. This is the, you know, I think a lot of people, it's, it's the easy route to, to get on playlist and do a few appearances. Right. But nobody wants to put in that real work. That's, right. my, that's my struggle with the business. I think, Obviously, you guys at EQT have a really unique approach where you you demand that your artists tour not only domestically but internationally, and and you understand that their vision is everything. But I think uh, some people within the corporate system 
you know, they're just trying to put their points on the board or they're yeah. trying to just do the the classic route. But I mean, that's not going to that's not going to break through. That's that's not going to get logic a number one um, and then put him in contention to beat Chris Stapleton, one of the best selling artists from a record perspective who, who we who we beat. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. By a few albums, which was a, a process. By a few albums. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we sold 250,000 albums. I think we beat them by like 25. But, you know, we were the first artist to ever do D2C really in an innovative way, attaching merchandise, signed merchandise. Um, and that's something where like we're educating Universal on, right? Yeah. How do you order merch? You know, how do you um, manage a warehouse when all of a sudden Logic sold 35,000 hoodies in three days, yeah. right? What people don't understand is we were, we were so effective because we sold the merch at a, at a discounted rate. But that's a knock on Logic's pocket because mm -hmm. now um, he's selling a hoodie for twenty four ninety five. He's making no money. The hoodie's yeah. thirteen dollars. The out al the album's four dollars. The shipping is yeah. you know he's making zero dollars. Yeah. It was a uh, complete investment in in his career and, and it paid off um, massive dividend dividends. So uh, speaking of fans, how do you guys think that? you were able to market to more of the cult following that Logic got his first as opposed to like traditional rap fans? And how did that change the way you marketed and the way you rolled out everything from that point on? I don't think we ever marketed to the quote unquote cult fan. I think because we pushed not only the music, but his message, yeah. people attached to it and they became, Logic became your favorite artist, right? Yeah. So whoever your favorite artist is, you're in that cult quote unquote, right? So right. J. Cole did an incredible job. Um, Cuddy. He's my favorite artist. He could literally get on the record and say, I fucking hate you, Harrison, and I'll still support him, <laughs> right? Um, but it wasn't really, it wasn't like we were going after certain fans that we knew would be all in. We knew if we put out great product with a great message and he was super vulnerable and human and relatable, right. it would develop into that. So we never right. chased. And, and with his technical ability, you can't ignore how incredible of an artist he is. So the rap, the those who fully respect the art of rap and, and respect great music will always be fans of him, in my opinion. In, right. in today's music market, how important is skill? Because it seems like there's a lot of people, I mean, marketing, obviously, the ability to create a narrative, to grow a fan base. I mean, that almost seems more important than technical prowess. I mean, where do you guys, obviously, it's a balance. It's but, a balance. Yeah. Gamb Gambino said the smartest thing, and I always say it. He said it in a 2013, remember when he freestyled over Pound Cake on Sway? Yeah, yeah. So he was on that radio run, and he said it to Rosenberg. He said, uh, your music is just an advertisement for your brand. Um, obviously, now it seems like from the outside, people who don't really understand hip-hop, they go, you know, this music isn't that grand it's not that wild you know musically sonically but at the end of the day it works it's working um but for longevity you have to create incredible music um i respect what's going on with hip-hop right now i love it um but you know will it withstand five years mm -hmm. you know that was always our, our our thing with logic it was let's get to the garden before everyone else um totally. and we beat a lot of people who were in a similar lane as us right, right, right. but I, I think it's all about building these these subcultures um not really owning a genre per se, but building your own. You look at 21 right. Pilots, right? Their last record, I don't even think they made, they took a shot really at a top 40 radio, but they sold 85% of their world arena tour out in three hours. Yeah. Wow. Because they own their fans and they own their culture. Right. Um, and, and the respect level for them is beyond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, 
One thing, I guess this is like a, a broader question to kind of take a step back. Uh, but what do you think? I mean, obviously you yourself and then Chris, I mean, are incredible managers building this really valuable, impactful management company. You have exposure to a lot of other artists, other managers. Um, what do you think separates good managers from great managers? It's a good question. Um, I think a lot of it is what he said about just getting the job done. Yeah, I think it's number one, work ethic. Yeah. Um, number two, I don't think there's a lot of great young managers. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you guys are doing a phenomenal job at EQT. Thank you know, you. the, the, what Pat's done with Chance, you know, Moshe mm-hmm. Lisi, Andrew Gertler, um, Jake Udell, um, Jesse Korn, who we partner with. Obviously, we, we thought he was a fantastic young manager. Um, work ethic is the biggest difference maker. And then, um, do you expand, like, what would, if you had to really kind of define, or I mean, work, work hard, hustle, hustle, hustle. Yeah. Can you demystify that? work smart, that right? Like, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Could, you could wake up and take 12 hours of meetings. Right. But if you're just bullshitting and grabbing <laughs> coffee and having lunch and yeah. going to shows, like, we didn't do that for right. like, We literally just fucking sat in Chris's basement and fucking, whether it was blogs, we would literally track down every blog or, or you know, this is something crazy not a lot of people know. John Billion had the first unofficial Spotify exclusive. So mm-hmm. John Bellion, producer, singer, songwriter from Long Island, in- incredible music talent. Yeah. Um, I, I would put him, you know, one-on-one against anyone when it comes to production, songwriting, right. lyrics. So he delivers us this project. It's a pop mixtape. So it's a free project. Mm-hmm. And we go, there's something going on on this, on Spotify, this thing called Spotify. And <laughs> it's, it, there's these three acts, Mr. Wives, Rock Band, G-Eazy, and Halsey. For some reason, they're all. I was I was familiar with G, obviously, because he came up in the same world as Logic. But for some yeah. reason, they were selling a ton of tickets, streaming a ton, and uh, I was like, "What's going on?" So Chris took his like first vacation in literally four years, and for like mm-hmm. three days, the dude's a workaholic, and he was like, "Yo, sit in your room and figure this out." So I built my own version of Spotify for artists. And I see there's these playlists, this thing called Today's Top Hits, Pop Rising, Viral Charts, and I literally made my own graph. And I was like, this is it. Yeah. Um, so we approached Spotify and we we say we have this project, John Billion, um, no samples fully. We own uh, Capital. He was signed to Capital at the time, but we would give it to you exclusively. Um, will you support it by putting it in this playlist plan? And at the time, Today's Top Pits had 2.2 million followers. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was still in development. Um, and they did, right? So it was like sort of just... you. you you can talk about what's going on and then you can figure out what's going on. Not a lot of people want to figure out what's going on. You know, I knew where the Spotify playlist team, we were, I was going to go to their office in Saratoga. That's mm-hmm. how dedicated I was. Dang. Um, and I think uh, at the end of the day, working really hard, uh, building genuine relationships and being a good person because it's crazy how the roles of so many people, especially in the brand space, they shift all the time, right? You can work with somebody who works as a, assistant at Nike, all of a sudden they're running entertainment marketing at Reebok, you know? Um, And just adapting and and being innovative. And just because something worked for one artist, it's not going to work for another artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not. And I think that's a lot of what a lot of companies struggle with. They try to take the exact same plan. Right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So one thing we like to kind of do sporadically uh, throughout the show is like a hot take segment where it's not necessarily – things we believe, but just stuff people are talking about in the industry. Um, 
So I think now that we're kind of talking at a higher level about like management, management companies, obviously we're seeing all these different, uh, like the model of management companies doing joint ventures with major labels. So the hot take here is that kind of management only as a company is becoming an outdated model. Do you think that's true or false? No way. That's not, no, no. Uh, He's like, fuck you. <laughs> man- management only is becoming an outdated model. False. Management is forever going to be a part of this business. The upside is tremendous. The, yeah. the competitive nature of it is tremendous. Um, artists need great managers, right? At the mm. end of the day, they can make incredible art, but if they don't have, it's not their job to market it. Right. Um, if you're a smart manager, I would advise you to get in the record business. The, the, the value of the master is becoming uh, increasingly more powerful. Um, I think you have an advantage because you understand an artist. You understand when to push their buttons, when when not to. Right. Uh, you understand what promo works and what what promo is sort of just for strictly promotional and really not adding any value. So mm-hmm. we we decided to explore that, and we have uh, Chris and I are partners on a joint venture with Sony, um, which we're super excited about. Uh, it's early; it's a brand new business, so yeah, we yeah, yeah. Uh, we haven't signed anything and. We are excited to take a manager and a youthful mentality to a business that is booming. Um, but a lot of the same people in that business are still there from, you know, the 1980s, 1990s. Yeah. But I think uh, what separates Sony is their leadership and, and some of their executives really, really get it. Um, and I'm stoked. But I mean, you know, we're we have nothing. to We have every, we're the underdogs. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, sure. we've, we've achieved, you know success in management, but we're literally the underdogs. But management will never be a less important part of the business. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nobody traditionally that, you know, the record label doesn't pick up the phone at 2 a.m. when when the artist is having a crisis or the tour bus breaks down. Right. I think we'll be a little different in the sense that we won't be managing these artists, but I've been mm-hmm. through every single scenario you could ever management imagine from a touring perspective mm-hmm. or, a, you know, uh, Obviously, Logic struggles with his mental health, um, so we really understand that and the intricacies of that as an artist. So we're going to pick up those phone calls and take care of that. But uh, it's just a it, you have to grow your business at the end of right. the day, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we thought that was the logical next step. Um, we we toyed around with the idea of do we play in sports? Do we play in entertainment? But um, but working with Sony is really you know truly the next step, and, and we're excited. But like I said, we're literally starting at ground zero, and it, and it's a brand new business. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that you that you talked about just now that's really important is that when you go from management to anything else, you've you've learned how to care first. So you know when you go from management to whether you decided to go into sports or whether you decided to go into a record label, you you already care about a lot of you know we you know what it's like to care about an artist. You know, I'm on emails with people sometimes where it's like all right, well, you just wait until you clock out at six very clearly just by the way you're dealing with me right now. And I think going from management to anything else, it's like you already know how to care. You already know what to do to make things move forward in a productive way. So that kind of gives you a leg up when you decide to start a label or when you decide to go into another industry. Mm -hmm. And what's cool about being somebody who prides themselves on execution operating, a label you can move at speed, right? In management, you move in conjunction with the pace of an artist's creative process, right? Yeah. So, um, but that's a great point about about caring. And at the end of the day, our partners on the label side from from an artist perspective are, are going to be family. We're going to treat them like we treat yeah. our management clients. And exactly. that's why I think we're going to succeed. Um, right. But I get it. Why some some label executives or, or some people in any corporate environment, they don't, they don't understand that genuine care because they've never had to really do it, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, they could be nice to their coworkers and go the extra mile around the holidays, but like 
you know, you guys deal with it all the time when, when the guys are in Europe and they have no money, right? You send yeah. a young artist there and they're broke <laughs> yeah. and they're like, why the hell am I right. there? You oh, know, yeah. and you're putting yourself out there. It happened to us. Um, yeah. Logic, we went to Europe. I was 19. I had no, we had no cell phones, no, we had cell phones, but we hadn't, we didn't know to get a data plan. We, yeah. we literally, we, we, we took trains everywhere. He was broke. Um, luckily we had a homie who wanted to come for the ride and, and lent us a little money when we missed our flight. Um, yeah. From like Paris to Amsterdam, maybe. Um, but it's that that care quality. Um, it's really intense and precious. So I think when you take it into another sphere of business anywhere where it's where there's not that where you can take that quality, it'll really shine in a corporate environment. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. To dive deeper into the dynamic, um, I mean, if we're looking at labels and management companies, joint ventures aside. Uh, more traditional, having an artist, they get signed to a label. Uh, kind of want to dive into that relationship dynamic. For starters, getting good deals on the table, building leverage so that when it does come time to sign with the art, uh, sign with a label, um, with your artist on behalf of your artist, uh, you come to the table to the point where you're getting a, a favorable deal. So, I mean, I think like you have multiple artists that are signed. Um, what do you feel are the most important aspects when trying to create leverage? So that you go into those conversations and get good deals. Fan base. The most important thing, right? If you have a fan base and a consumer base, I mean, right. uh, your partner's going to want to maximize on that. Right. Um, major labels are more important than ever if you want to be an international superstar. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, you know, Universal has an incredible international team that literally works all day on on making sure your records are are communicated the right way and, and marketed the right way in Japan and Jakarta and mm-hmm. in Russia and yeah. Sweden. Right. Um, I don't have that capabilities. I don't have those relationships. I'm starting to build them. We took a European trip to meet a lot of the label heads on the universal side, which was enlightening and to hear the different cadences and textures of, of each um, territory. But at the end of the day, major labels are, are crucial right now, right? right? Um, promotion continues to remain a pivotal part of, of the game um, and financial backing from a marketing perspective will put you in a position where Spotify or Apple or, or any of your other key partners can say, wow, they're really going to invest in this for us to grow together. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, Spotify and Apple want to, it's not their job to break artists, but they, they want to drive more people to their platform. Right. So right. if I can come to them and say, Hey, I've got this extensive content plan that's going to really live on your platform or live on both platforms and it's going to help drive more people there. That's what, that's what they care about. Right. right. So deal signed. Uh, how do you leverage that relationship with the label to get the resources that they do have at their disposal? A lot of inner politics. Yeah. Um, I think you have to be sort of like a politician for your own artist, right? So yeah. uh, a label employee has, you know, they get in at nine, you know, they may leave at seven or they may be equally as hardworking, but they could have seven or eight projects, right? You've seen this on the yeah. management side. Why, why is your project going to be their number one priority, right? Right. So how do you incentivize everybody from, you know, the the finance team and the shared services and the legal team? Because when, you know, Logic's coming with a record, Kanye could come with a record the same day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I need my, Logic needs his sign off the same day. It's totally. just as important, right? Yeah, so yeah. I, I pride myself on really maintaining strong relationships with the base of the company. Um, and then, you know, really, really working together when you can um, to to succeed. And, and you have to motivate people to be a part of your project. And mm. you grow a fan base, you have something amazing. People want to attach themselves to it. Right. Um, so if we if we win, that means 
the label we're all winning. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a lot of inner motivating inside, campaigning inside, right? Yeah. And you even think globally, like Virgin Logic, we're signed to uh, our label partner in the UK is Virgin. You know, they're getting thrown hundreds of American artists a month. Yeah. You know, why are they going to care about Logic versus right. somebody else? They're going to care about Logic because, you know, we flew over to meet with them and have, you know, had meals with them and, and right. laughs and been through the ups and downs. For sure. um, so they pick up those phone calls and they go the extra mile. Um, that's the, that, that was the biggest thing that was a miss that I, that I had a misunderstanding of. I thought, you know, I was young at the time and really just watching. I was like, Logic signed a Def Jam, it's game over. You know, right. it's like, holy shit. He got like, it. Yeah, you know, like, like, like yeah. whatever feature, whatever feature we want, like whatever, like we would Get like, Jay-Z on the phone. We, no, like, <laughs> no, like naively, like we drew up a marketing plan. We're like, we need Funk Flex to play this song at this time. And like, yeah. Now looking back, I'm like, <laughs> I can't get funk to play. I can maybe get it like one or two spins on mix show at like 4 a.m. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's a lot of educating the building, especially when you build something like we build with our artists, where it's sort of um, doesn't really sit in the model of the clubs or right. in traditional pop straight to radio. Mm-hmm. It's educating them. Yeah. Um, but once they understand it, um, that's when you find your, your biggest success. But it's like, Holy shit! These people just gave you this much money, but you still got to teach them about your own artists. Right. But it, yeah. it, it, it makes sense when when they have so many projects. So. Yeah, for sure. No, I like that. I mean, it seems just oftentimes sentiment is very much like they're there to serve you, but you really have to be proactive in nurturing that relationship. And on the back end, just being appreciative, extremely. You know? Just being just being a good person to them after the work is even done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yesterday, I literally uh, I took out the entire. Uh, the six or seven women who are on the shared services team of Universal, so that's BA, legal, mm-hmm. finance, um, took them out for like a year-end drinks and, yeah. and, and meal just because they're the ones in production who are putting in that work at 1 a.m. when yeah. we're making a change to the master and I'm, I'm fucking hammering them. Right, right. Um, and then Logic's incredible with it. He does an incredible job of, of making sure they feel like they're um, – they're taking care of whether it's gifts around uh, mm-hmm. around the holidays or, or just you know personal texts or notes. Um, yeah. John Bellion does a phenomenal job as well. Um, but most importantly, you got to make your fans let you have to let your fans know that they come first. Yeah, right? for sure. Because with no fan base, there's no there's yeah. no sticking power, and yeah, 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 la- yeah, yeah. label doesn't care. Yeah. So um, it's it's you know artist development is not easy, right? And it takes no. four or five years. You know, if you're lucky, to, even that fast. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, you said earlier, fan base, you use that for leverage. Um, when I interned at Mass Appeal Records, one of the first people that kind of taught me about the A&R game and, and really seeing what, what fan base meant, uh, his name is Brian Johnson, actually. Um, he told me that fan base, you know, I was obviously going on SoundCloud and I was looking at who was streaming the most. And he's like, you should be looking at that. Like, that makes sense. But, you know, there's some people who don't stream that often that can fill a room of 500 in some weird town in Indiana that we don't know about. And we're trying to also find those people. Um, so when you come into a room at a label, obviously streaming is obviously the more important thing when, in terms of leverage. But um, in a, at a management company, how often do you, when you guys are trying to find new artists, try to look at, you know, obviously try to look at the whole picture. But how do you find the artists that may not be streaming that much, that may have avenues in other situations and and how do you how do you uh, prioritize that or not prioritize that? But how do you how do you I guess compare that to to artists that do stream well or you know? So I, I guess I'm just trying to say what's your A and R process like? I get it. Um, 
to be honest, I'm not really involved in the A&R process in finding new artists. Um, mm-hmm. But that being said, we're looking always looking for artists with a message, as cliche as it sounds. Right. Because if they have a message, we can market that at the same time as marketing the music. Um, we're looking right. for artists who work their asses off. Um, and if you can fill a room of 500 people across the country, there's fans there. You just got to yeah. be smart enough to get them to stream the music or buy the music or, right. or buy in, right? Um, there's no excuse if you say there's no audience. Um, mm-hmm. I think... The, the role of an A&R is, is constantly changing. Um, mm-hmm. We have a great A&R, Def Jam, uh, Noah Preston, and he's really adapted with like how the business is adapted, um, just becoming an incredible facilitator for Logic and w- what he needs. Um, but in terms of new clients, we're just obsessed with people who have something to stand for. Right. It's hard for us to fight for somebody who has nothing to stand for. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got to want it just as bad as we do. Um, but I'm excited to see how Chris approaches the A&R process on the label side yeah. um, and and see the role of A&R is cha- constantly changing. Right. Right. I think uh, we're starting to talk a little bit about like the message of the artist, the narrative of the artist, the unique uh, elements of the artist, and how that kind of corresponds to growing a community and a fan base that people can resonate with and, and really grasp around. I know uh, we're actually speaking to, I guess, your mutual friends, Jordan's colleague, Henny from EQT. You want to talk through kind of the, the question that he raised and thought would be cool to talk about kind of and how the message evolved? Um, from- yeah. Yeah. I actually spoke with Henny right before the podcast. Um, just like, yo, is there anything that you might want to ask Harrison? Because he was pretty excited that you were going to be on a podcast. Um, and he wanted me to ask you, how did, how did the message change or how did the grind change from when you guys went from, you know, Logic being this indie artist to, to being this nationally internationally recognized artist um what's your day what's your day-to-day at this point compared to what it was back then what are some of the things that you do now that you didn't do back then just kind of what that what that growth was like sure um it's two-part i think logic stayed true to himself the whole time Mm -hmm. Um, if you look at his evolution you look at him on the xxl cover and he was wearing gold chains styled by Carucci, which is like hilarious to think of now because the dude literally performed in Under Armour sweatpants for like two years straight. But it was like, you know, we're recognizing the J. Coles are winning, the Ed Sheerans are winning, yeah. the Taylor Swifts are winning. They're all human. So let's yeah, just go yeah. all in, right? So yeah, how do we yeah. partner with Comic-Con? How do we partner with um, the voice actor community? How do we partner with, you know, how do we dig deeper into nerd culture? And how do we let Logic be him? Um, and once he sort of let go of the idea of chasing something that, was uh, maybe a culture that he really didn't at his core resonate with, but he was a part of. That's when he really evolved and his message stayed the same, right? You look at his hit record, it's a, a message of, uni- it's a universal message, right? Yeah. And that's what he's been saying since day one, peace, love, and positivity. Um, our day-to-days changed, you know, significantly. Obviously, he's become a much bigger business and, yeah. and he's a global artist, so you have to manage those relationships at the same time. Um, and having a hit, that big, I think it's like almost six times platinum, which is crazy and really a cultural hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a hit that was tied to mental health, which had become this massive cultural conversation was really, really hard, you know, because yeah. you have to, everybody wanted a piece of him, right? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wanted to sit on the couch with him, but it wasn't his job to talk about the the psychological, right. the, the genes and genetics of what it means to mm-hmm. have, right. to be, he wrote the song from a pure place and he can speak to his, uh, his experiences and, and rapture that series through mass appeal really captured that yeah. really, really well. Um, it's a lot of the business is now a lot of yes, no, and being more strategic with, with who you 
align yourself with. Um, years ago, I used to, you know, pick up the phone and chase brands all day. But it, for him, it's a it's a qual- it's a quality game, not a quantity game. Now, now yeah, um, you know, you can't just partner with anyone for a quick check. Um, he knows his value one hundred fifty percent. Right. He knows what it's going to cost for him to step out of the door, or you know, really put his arm behind a product or, or a brand. Um, the business is just bigger, man. The, the the pressure, the stakes are just incredibly higher. Yeah. Um, when you go on tour at House of Blues level, maybe you're investing a hundred k. Now he's investing enough to have you know multiple security guards, tour security, a fifty person crew. So you know there, there's a lot of pressure financially for right. for us to to keep on budget and make sure that he walks out at that end of that tour, the end of the festival, the end of the show with uh, with what he deserves and what we promised him. Right. Um, so not much has really changed in terms of his message and not really has much and not really much has changed in terms of how hard we work. Everything is just amplified. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the beginning, Logic said it really well a few weeks ago. He said, you know, in the beginning, a lot of it is luck. But when you get towards the top, it's 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 work ethic. Yeah, um, because so much of it is luck meets work ethic meets talent meets just you know, Chris and Logic meet via the internet. What are the chances? You know what yeah. I mean? Um, but when you get to the top, it, it sort of flips from like luck being less of an element and work being more. Right. And then how have you guys uh, kept such a strong relationship with Logic for the past seven plus years? I mean, I think working on a level like that with any artist for seven, or eight years is is kind of impressive. So what do you guys attribute that to? Yeah, I think Chris is incredible in, in, in his people skills and his, um, you know, we we treat our artists like they're our family, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we've done so much for them outside of the scope of music um, in terms of just being there for them as people and brothers. And, and Logic doesn't forget who was there when 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 he was broke and, and yeah. we were working for free, right? Same with John Bellion and these new artists, you know, they don't they don't forget who's paying attention at 2 a.m. Even, mm. even when it's a first project. Um, you, can't, you can't replace that. So right. I never... Um, management is an intense business in the sense that you, you know, any day you never know what could happen. But I mean, if, yeah. you, if you do the right thing and you're a good person and every single day you, you work your, your ass off and, and, and are extremely loyal and, and they see that and know that, um, I'm, I'm never really, I never really question the uh, value or intent of our relationship because I know it's so pure. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I think. You're alluding to the value, and we've already spoken to this theme multiple times, the notion of just care, right, and and how valuable that is in executing, manifesting an artist's vision and maintaining that client relationship. Um, it's also one of the hardest things to scale because uh, especially, I mean, unless you're taking on a new manager every time you're bringing on a it's new a artist. Really, really good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I mean, I, I think one of the hot takes, I mean, hot take question, management doesn't scale well. Can you speak to your thoughts around how you can try and balance that tightrope of wanting to grow, work with more artists, but still not doing so at the sacrifice of that care? That's a, yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think you guys do it really well um, at, e- at EQT. We recently did a management partnership with Jesse Korn, who's a young manager, um, recently turned 30. He has four clients, Quinn, Chelsea Cutler, Jeremy Zucker, AOK. You know, we know that giving the the relationship we have in Logic and John, it would be hard to ever recreate because we right. were there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But it's like, we're finding somebody who's like-minded. Mm-hmm. He has an incredible relationship with the clients. Um, he's allowing us to have a relationship with them all in our own ways. Chris on more of a 
vision, marketing, rollout, uh, music level, me, I'm more of a touring level, just operations. Mm -hmm. That's how we're scaling. We're investing mm -hmm. in not only these artists, but him and right. supporting him in every single way. So whatever mm -hmm. he needs, um, literally from minutia tasks to, to big level, um, you know, we could do 10 email intros a week, but what's the value in that, right? <laughs> you know, like, can we really get deals done for him? Can, yeah, we, can yeah. we really um, get things done for him at, at midnight, you know, a week before the tour. So that's right. how we scaled. We found a really creative way to, way to scale. We partnered with another young manager and we said, we are going to give you our, our mentorship, our sweat equity, our, our blood equity and mm -hmm. blood equity, sweat equity. <laughs> I'm not giving you We're my blood. So I'm, not giving, I'm, not giving you my, I'm not giving you my blood. There was a meme at Vayner, was a meme at Vayner that circulated in this like all things Gary Slack channel. And it was, uh, Somebody satirizing Gary's Gary Vaynerchuk's like views on hard work, and it's like you gotta hustle so hard your eyes bleed. <laughs> Man, I used to think like that. I still I still sometimes think like that, and it's so stupid. You just have to. I I have the. You just have to work smarter. Yeah, right? um, yeah and work yeah. more efficient. Right. Um, I used to do that, like do it until your eyes bleed, until your eyes bleed. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Gary's really the king of it, and and he's so incredible and in, in what he's done and what he's built and his vision is he's the he's gonna own the jets there's no question yeah no, <laughs> no matter crazy. whether there's five teams in the nfl or the yeah. jets are winning the super bowl he's owning yeah. them right, right. Yeah. um he's a genius he's one of the most inspiring people i've ever met um his team is incredible but uh i thought you met the jets were incredible i was about to be no, like you don't gotta say all that i'm not a uh, i'm not a big football guy but uh i know the jets are not incredible um, <laughs> But that we, we found a really unique way to scale, but correct, it is a very difficult uh, business to scale, especially as it works today. I think the idea of like day-to-day, -day, just throwing somebody on as a day-to-day -day does not work mm -hmm. um, because just because you ran a management companies in the 90s and you know, you know, program directors across the country, that doesn't mean you're going to build a fan base, right? right. And those day-to-days may have zero experience. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't really believe in the day-to-day -day model. We don't give titles to anybody else on the team besides myself and Chris. Um, yeah, we don't have titles either. Yeah, there's because it's, you know, our best yeah. employee is, is, mm -hmm. is this kid named Bam by any means necessary, right? Yeah. That's yeah. what we always say. Uh, I like that. But um, it's also very hard to find, to hire people on the management side. I'm sure you can talk to that as well because it's such a, there's so much privacy that goes on in the artist's lives that, that certain people unsure if you can trust them, if you if, yeah. if they can be privy to it, even music, right? Um, we found that to be a challenge, but we we just decided to uh, to hire. I'm excited to to bring on a new team member. And uh, it, it's the scalability of it is very difficult. Yeah. You have to find creative ways. So I think, right. you know, um, some people have done similar things we've done with Jesse. Um, but, you know, we really, really put our reputations and our work ethic and our resources and our relationships on the table in full. Totally. Um, mm. And if we don't mesh, you know, not not only are we working for his artists, we're working in conjunction with him. We believe in him. Yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's right. super awesome. I mean, one thing that's hard about scaling a management company is when you bring somebody in and you already have that relationship, like you're saying, with the artists, it's difficult to be like, okay, well, here's this other person that's joining the team and they're going to exactly. work with you almost as much as I do, but you don't know them, but they're going to know everything about your life. Yeah. So, so it's like, all right, well, yeah. well, let's get them in a room maybe or something. Like how, how do we get this person who, who wasn't previously on the management company 
to be on the management company, not only on the company itself, but to get to know these artists to a point where they can be productive with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate where, you know, Chris really has the artist ear, um, but the artists know at the same time I'm there at the backbone of it all, you know, right. keeping for it all sure, together. For sure, for um, sure. I have no interest in being best friends with, with the artists. I think the, the work <laughs> is done behind the desk, right? Yeah. Um, obviously, yeah. I, I love them to death and I'll do anything for them, but they, totally. you know, they don't, I don't think they want that. Uh, yeah. I think they, they'd be like, why the fuck are you with me everywhere I go? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Don't you have something to do with your life? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's difficult, but it has to be organic. It's almost like a blind date, right? Yeah. It's like if you guys hire a new employee and you introduce them to, to Smino, Goldlink, or whoever, it could take four or five weeks for them to click as friends, right? Yeah. And then maybe before you know it, they have an incredible relationship and, and holy shit, you know, he's going to do all the creative stuff. You know, he's going to do all the, the, or he's going to develop all the tours with them or do all their publicity. That That's our goal as employees yeah. um, grow. And, and we've seen that with, with the new clients. Um, we all have our unique relationships with them, um, but it has to be organic. And I see that that's a struggle at labels. They're like, Okay, we met with him. Now he's our best friend. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like take him on a promo run in Reno, <laughs> Re, in Reno, Nevada, when like they don't know his name, and like maybe after you endure that experience, you can become friends. Yeah. Right. That's literally what happens. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, shout out yeah. my boy uh, Mundo, who works at at, at Rhythm Radio in uh, in for Def Jam. Logic used to do this thing. Uh, Mundo came to like six or seven concerts. He was covering the tournament. They would do this whole thing. Fuck you, Mundo. And it was really just sort of like initiate him to the crew. And now yeah, he's like, yeah. you know, now he, we, we love him to death. That's right. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, it's difficult, man. We don't, you know, artists are such intricate people. It's, it's like you and I can meet at a coffee shop and hit it off on, on business stuff, but like to really understand them and gain their trust is nearly impossible. Yeah. Um, so there's sometimes because their art is their everything. They're just as precious on their relationships and friendships. So yeah, I see that, but some label people are amazing at it. Um, How many people work at VMG now? It is Chris, myself, Lawrence Lamb, who used to be an agent at Paradigm. He's been with us for like two years. He works on the operations side with me. And then we partner with Jesse and we just... Uh, we just hired some. It's unique. <laughs> we called him. We we met this kid through an old intern of ours, and he was like doing some graphic work. And I would just constantly throw stuff at him, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Yeah, I'm down. I'm down. I'm down." And always cranking out shit like with That's speed. Awesome. Yeah, I was like, yeah. "This kid's, this kid's, this kid's <laughs> a fucking. He's a savage." Yeah. Um, so we call him. His name is Brendan, and we were like, "Hey, man, you know, it's time for us to hire on the management side. We've been struggling to find someone. We think you're a great fit. Um, we know you're in San Francisco." Uh, we're going to put something together for you from an offer perspective and we hope to bring you on in January. Yeah. And he texted us four days later. He's like, yo, I'm in Bushwick. I got an apartment. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was like, all right, bro. Like, here's the office address. Come. The um, office so, is here. Um, no, 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 no. Our office is in New York. He yeah, lives in San Fran. Yeah, your offices are Our here. Our office is yeah. here. So he, you know, that's oh, the Oh, man, lead. good timing. Yeah, no, no. It was, he believed oh, in he, it. He we moved. didn't even give him a real offer. Oh, damn. And he moved straight up, which I respect. That's um, dope. So let's, so, so, um, Shout out, shout out, Brendan. And, Good for him for finding an apartment in four off. days, too. Yeah, that's, he, that's impressive by itself. Yeah, like, his, yeah, just his, for him doing that, you should have been like, yo, you, we got you yeah. now. <laughs> but that's you what need you need, feed. man. Like, I would do, like, man, there were so many times I would take my ex-girlfriend's car and just leave class for, for a week, right? And <laughs> just, like, just to be in the opportunity to be at the fader with Logic three, yeah. four years ago, just to be in the room as a fly on the wall. Or, or my first day ever, I remember I followed him around and his photographer for like seven or eight hours, just holding the silver, I don't even, what is that thing? Like the silver reflector? 
a oh, photo shoots. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. For I flesh. don't know. What it's called, I don't know. But yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what it's called, but so I would do do the cra- the craziest story of it all is is I the two cra- the two best stories are there's a lot of good stories, but the two the two good stories I could work for this are. John Bellion played his sold out show at SOBs. I was tour managing it and I had a final for my Russian literature class that I had to pass. (laughs) And I did the show at SOBs, settled the show, went to the after party for an hour and I took the Metro North back to Poughkeepsie where my school was. And I, on my computer, watched Anna Karenina, the Russian, uh, uh, the it was based on the Russian book called Anna Karenina and I had to watch the movie to learn about it. And I somehow <laughs> 7am, I drank a bunch of coffee and, and, and fucking pat, literally, I think I got like a 67 and passed. Oh man. Um, and so then, you, you didn't sleep the whole night? No. <laughs> yeah. And then it was like one of those brutal, I don't know if you guys know the Metro North, you have to transfer, oh, yeah. transfer yeah. at Cronin oh, Harmon. to Poughkeepsie? And like, there's nothing more depressing than like transferring in Cronin Harmon at 3am and like one of those random like, boxes like that you just wait in where I'm literally holding my computer watching this <laughs> this, this DVD uh, shout out my buddy uh, I have a good friend named Andrew Bloom and he uh, he helped me through that uh, I cheated <laughs> off him the whole test so I appreciate him it, uh, happens, it happens and then, it happens. And oh, then another great story is we were logic we were on our second national tour it was 2013 it was May remember the exact day it was May 23rd logic had flown to the XXL show um, you remember they used to do their, the LA and New York XXL show. So it was yeah. Logic, Travis, Action Bronson, Busta Rhymes, him, his security guard, and Chris, um, him and the security guard flew to um, New York and uh, Chris was in New York at the time. They all met up and they, they did the show. Mm-hmm. We had a three-day drive from Colorado to Omaha. Mm-hmm. And we're in the middle of Texas or right near Fort Worth, Texas in the middle of a tornado. Well, in a van, in a bandwagon, <laughs> and our tour and our our merch manager at the time was the only person who had touring experience. He'd been on the road fifteen years. He was like, "Yo, we're gonna die." Pull the, pull the bus over. <laughs> I literally submitted my last final in the middle of a tornado Damn. on on the on the on the bandwagon. I have wow. a picture of it. Wow. I remember typing it. I was in like the one condo bunk that was big for our security guard. That was man. That was such a such a memory. Uh, <laughs> but it's crazy. Like literally, we thought we were gonna die. And wow. we were, yeah. And Logic was such a good guy, man. He would call, check in on us. And, 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 um, that bandwagon, that's like such a deceptive, uh, touring mechanism because they say you can drive it. <laughs> dude, you can't drive. I can't, I can barely drive a fucking Nissan. I didn't drive to the first, dude. The first, man, there's so many legendary stories. We, I mean, the, the thing that I did, I said, I saw that thing the first day. I said, I can't drive that. So I'll, I'll take the, uh, I had to be the guy who runs in the back of the bus and take the valve out with all the bathroom. Oh, yeah. and gray and black water. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, man, we had crazy shit happen. Our, our, our trailer fell off Our you know, Damn. We, but it's man, it's life. And yeah. then it's cause I wasn't really that, I was never a handy person, but yeah. it was yeah. just like fucking adapt or survive. Right. Yeah, you know, like, like, hello, like hello what's it. the, what's the other option when yeah. you're on the road. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's crazy, man. Some of those people that we worked with on those first tours are some of my best friends in the world, even like promoter reps and stuff that you remember that were there when you had nothing. Yeah. Um, I know you guys have a great relationship with Scoremore. Yeah. Um, and they really supported you, but it's people like that, independent promoters, regional Live Nation, AEG promoters that you're good to them in the beginning. They don't know what's going to happen to you, um, but it's it's crazy how Logic has done 
you know, two massive amphitheater tours with a lot of the same promoters who did his TLA show in mm-hmm. Philly, you know, yeah. his House of Blues yeah. Chicago show. Yeah, that's awesome. People people underestimate like the value of uh uh, on the the live side, they're becoming gatekeepers, right? Yeah. You know, that was really crucial for Goldlink. A lot of these festival buyers built, yeah. bought in really early. And like from a perceptive label standpoint, they're like, damn, this kid's playing whatever. I don't yeah. know, Coachella, I assume. Yeah. You know, Lollapalooza, all this shit. Yeah. They're like, fuck, we got to fucking break this. You know, we're spending, yeah. we're flying our executives out 5K, you know, yeah. first class to go see it. We better do something with it. Yeah. Um, right. So I pride myself on, you know, working in conjunction with the agents, but also, you know, making sure if we've rolled through to a festival, you know, that uh, that they know we're appreciative and thankful for the platform. Totally. Um, you know, it's it's Logic Headline Soundset. That's three and a half years of me, you know, learning Jay Bird and learning about him and, and figuring mm-hmm. out what he wants to do and, and yeah. meeting up with him in New York. And mm-hmm. people underestimate like what a what the human touch does. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting to those people aren't going anywhere. Those businesses that are the key the key festival businesses are getting bigger. Um, they're pivotal for young artists. I think playlists are, are an easy way to mm-hmm. break. Um, I think it's becoming 2018 was the hardest year to break an artist, in my opinion, in the past 15 years. Mm. I think with the amount of music that's out there, yeah, 25,000 songs a week. Um, and, you know, as Spotify moves to an algorithmic model, which is, you know, incredibly impressive and, and an intimate connection with your music. You know, everybody thinks it's easy. Get on playlist one, two, three. That's going to mean X, Y, Z streams, right? Man, it's about finding micro audiences and doubling down, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what you guys do. Um, I keep praising you guys, but you guys do a great job of that, right? Like this growing from the selection world and taking yeah. that and noticing, you know, hey, this sounds going to work in London. It's going to work in Paris. Let's double down there, right? So like a great example of that and something, you know, Gary preaches about a lot. Um, Chelsea Cutler, she's a ex college uh, college soccer player, um, really into sports, um, really into being the voice of female producers and songwriters. Mm-hmm. There aren't you put a you walk through any label, you ask somebody name five female songwriters, five female producers, they wouldn't be able to, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're working, hopefully working in conjunction with. I just had a call with them, uh, U.S. Women's National Team Soccer. You know, um, I want to double down on that audience because for right. me, it's like find these micro audiences and and, and grow them. Um, working with some really innovative uh, Instagram like culture accounts, the overtimes of the world, the dunks, right. yeah. Because um, it's like start there, and then that will be your army, right? Uh, for sure. Because it was crazy, man. Like it used to be the where are the ox kids, right? So like that was the key. Could you get to the kids who in the dorm room of eight people always have the ox? But you used to be able to get to them through the blogs, right? Yeah. It was easy. But now it's like there's millions of people listening on Spotify. Where are my ox kids? How do I find them? Definitely. Um, That's the biggest struggle we have. But if we can solve that question, we will expedite the process. (laughs) We are close to solving it. Nice. So as things wind down here, uh, obviously, I mean, you guys have reached, I mean, with logic level of success, I mean, near the top. Um, We've painted this like beautiful rosy picture. Yes, we've alluded to like the hard work and turn it like some of the harder times, but like, Oftentimes, I feel like uh, some of the biggest successes come very, very shortly after pushing through some of the lowest lows. And we haven't really gone too deep into that. So I'd love to hear you just speaking through some of those moments where you were questioning it all. You were thinking about quitting, giving up. Sure. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, and working for free for two years in college and, and yeah. sacrificing tons of parties. I used to call 
uh, other sacrifice and tons yeah, of Yeah, I, I, you know, I had, yeah. I really had no, fr- I, I really, yeah. I had buddies, but I had no genuine friends. I have no best right. friends from college, maybe one or two. Um, I would call people and say, you know, I, I hope Chris takes care of me after college, or I hope this really pans out because I got nothing else. Yeah. Um, but it's specific examples. I'll give you a bunch. So the documentary I was speaking about earlier, um, it was two days before we had to deliver it. I had a, we were at the complex shoot with Neil deGrasse Tyson in a warehouse right around here in Brooklyn. I had a complete breakdown. I had like six or seven clearances left, including the Batman logo. And if I didn't clear that, uh, the entire documentary would have been ruined because it was, uh, he recorded the Batcave. What he mm. named the studio in the back of every single recording was the Batman logo. Yeah. Um, so literally had a fucking anxiety breakdown, yeah. you know, cry my eyes out secretly um, and just put my head down and got it done. Um, we did this thing where uh, the first... The the first album of Logic's career studio album was a people think it was this massive success, seventy three thousand albums sold, almost beat Ti. It was the most devastating time of our lives. Um, people say why we were massively undershipped in a time where retail mattered. Mm-hmm. Um, we were going to sell a hundred thousand records, and we were going to make the biggest statement in music that year, right? Because selling a hundred grand in twenty fourteen was like you sell a hundred k first week, you're fucking, you're yeah, very very legitimate. Um, yeah. And we were handcuffed by our own partners at Def Jam. Unfortunately, they didn't really believe in, in putting the inventory out there we needed. Um, loved them to death today and love all those people who worked on that project. Everyone from from uh, Chris Atlas to, to Steve Bartles, who who changed Logic's career and changed all of our lives with his success on 1-800. Um, but we were handcuffed. Google leaked the album on the pre-order and we were mm. devastated. It was Chris's birthday. I remember I took him for a... Uh, I don't know if you guys know Long Island Ice Cream. There's a Carvel, uh, like a really great saucer place. I was like, bro, it's your birthday. The album leak, like life sucks. We're going to go eat like fucking huge milkshakes. (laughs) So we go, we eat the milkshakes. We're like, fuck, we're like, fuck, man, Google better. I'm like, Chris, tell Google, fucking get Google on the phone. Tell them, put us on the fucking homepage. Fucking tell, tell them to hold all the J albums from Def Jam, hold everything. And we woke up that next day. It was a Saturday and we were staring at this box of posters and we were like, let's tell Google, discount the album, put it, put it at a discounted price. Everybody who buys an album on Google, they're getting a signed poster from Logic. Now, what that meant was setting up a Gmail called Logic Poster, con- whatever it was, Logic Under Pressure 301 at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. I think that was the, I have yeah. a crazy memory. I literally, <laughs> that, that was the email. And so Chris was like, Harry, you, could, you, can, you can do it. Like, just go in the Gmails and make a, you know, spreadsheet. I go in like Saturday, three o'clock, literally five, six emails come in and go upstairs. We, I don't know. We get someone to eat, come back 10,000. Like literally there were 6,000 emails in that first week. Um, and I had to manually go through every single email, reply myself and create an Excel sheet. So I would work all day. And then for two hours after work, I would work on that. Right. I couldn't do that during the day because I wouldn't be productive. And then I handed that that Excel sheet into the universal team and they said, uh, the sheet doesn't work with our system. Redo it. So I had to Yo, redo the whole some, thing that's, myself. That's some label shit to um, say. <laughs> yeah, it is what it, I mean, you know, but it, it was so that's innovative. So it, it was what it was. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that was just like a crazy thing that like we, we were like, we just had to get it done. We were in a massive lawsuit for Logic's name for four years mm-hmm. um, with uh, DJ Logic that actually mm. went to the Supreme Court, um, but it was uh, denied. Um, but it was a, we weren't allowed to put out music officially for a long time. Um, 
I think that the failure, more like the the true feeling of disappointment on that first album was wild. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's not really we've experienced a ton of like daily minutia failures, right? I make a mistake every single day, um, but it's more like those moments of like trying to achieve the impossible. Right before the impossible happens, you're like this shit may go south real quick. Yeah, um, that's like the feeling I get a lot more than like extreme failure. Um, we're gonna lose. Um, you know, we're going to lose and we talk about that all the time, but it's how you bounce back and how you stay consistent. Right. Right. Um, Damn. Well said, bro. Yeah. I appreciate that. Could end it on that. Oh, Gary knows that. You know what I mean? He talks about that all the time. You're going to lose and you got to keep it moving. Um, We've been lucky enough not to lose yet, um, but uh, fortunate to to work with people who are are just obsessed with what they do as, as I am. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. What do you guys think about the current state of the business? Sort of like as we end 2018. The like music what, what, Yeah, what does this year mean? Like, how do you think this year marks itself in the history of music? I think 2018 was just such a great year for music in general. Got it. Like, so much music came out, so many great albums. I mean, if you look at my top 100 on Spotify right now, I got, like, Saba in there, but I also got, like, Casey Musgraves in there. Because <laughs> it was just such good stuff came out across the board. Like. Yeah. 2018, it was like, whoa, music is back. People are making money again. Masters matter again. Like, I feel like that's what 2018 is in my head. Like, the industry's growing again. Like, oh, shit. Like, the people that said I shouldn't major in the music industry when I was 18 years old, they're like, oh, shit, this is getting bigger. This is, like, really growing into something. I think, for me, that was, like, the main turning point of 2018. It's from, like, oh, the music industry is just this thing to now people are, like, becoming millionaires again and gaining its traction again. For sure. And And it's going to attract a lot of more young, smart people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You're going to see Ivy League kids come be in the business. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I mean, it's cool to see, like, all the hype around, like, the second golden age, too. I mean, just revenue starting to climb. I think for me, a couple things come to mind. One is like you're just seeing the convergence of all these different genres. Um, mm-hmm. We were speaking to this notion. I mean, you started a hip hip hop company and now running a pop management. Like, who would have guessed? Which, by right? the way, was was pretty similar to EQT too. Like, yeah. we we have a, a a bunch of different genres now. Um, yeah, you guys are a genreless too. company. Yeah, yeah. But at first, it was like you know, Gold Link was the big one, and we thought like you guys did with Logic, we were just going to take over the hip hop game. It's funny as you're saying stuff. I'm, I'm like nodding my head if you look back at this video because it's like, damn, the same shit happened with EQT. Yeah, but, yeah. And the other thing is is too. I think it's uh, and obviously I have a somewhat like biased perspective in the sense that I come from this marketing media world, having worked at VaynerMedia. Um, but just seeing artists become mini media companies. And I mm-hmm. think this also goes back to the notion that you were speaking to of like the human side. I think like fans really long to see this like behind the curtain side. I mean, not super cliche, but like social media transparency. I mean, that stuff creates human connection yes. at yeah. scale. And then the biggest artists are media companies in themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you look at, Drake is the biggest media company in the world right now. It's crazy. Logic's a media company. John is just, you know, all of our emerging artists are getting there. And I think what people under, people are obsessed with content. And and Sam, what we're working on, you know, obviously on on Chelsea, Mm -hmm. um, people are obsessed with content, but they don't understand that even to put out content, and if it it doesn't have to do 100,000 views. Right. But the minute Chelsea has a song on the radio, Mm-hmm. And there's four people in that car, and one of the girls in that car says she was my favorite artist back then. Go search her on YouTube. They're gonna go back, mm-hmm. and they're gonna see all those videos, and they're gonna skyrocket. Look at John Bellion's <laughs> making of. Yeah, that, that yeah. was literally the whole model. Yeah, we were gonna say we're gonna we're gonna create our own archive, right? Because it's a wormhole. Imagine yeah. imagine Bruno Mars had all the making ofs of his songs. Mm-hmm. 
as he had that first radio hit. Obviously, he it panned out okay. He's still a fucking superstar. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it yeah. would have been even triple, you know, quadruple, right. you know. Um, that's the goal, right? So I'm obviously, you know, I have impression goals. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm building a content archive history. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You Goldlink, there's so much good live content of him out there. I remember yeah. he did that... Uh, so like dome performance in Long Island City or something years ago. What year was I think that? It was like a, yeah, it was like an early live 14, stream thing. 13, but I know it lives on the internet. But I'm, yeah. and I think, um, you know, when I dive into an artist, I watch all their live stuff. You know, Kendrick Lamar's Made in America 2014 performance is probably my favorite YouTube video to watch. Most inspiring thing of all time. Um, but people need to understand that content's a long game. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that content's a process, right? Artists don't know how to, they make art, they may not be ready for camera. So, right. Um, but luckily, we've found a nice little niche, you and I together mm-hmm. on, on mm-hmm. everything else you're working on to build. We're building an archive. So, yeah. for when, when she is at the amphitheater level or, or the arena level, you know, those people are going to go back and as they wait for that next tour or next year, they're going to be spending hours on YouTube. Yeah. For sure. The yeah. depth of, fandom too yeah yeah and giving people the opportunity to create that depth to learn more to have just the fact that the rabbit hole exists yeah that also makes it a, a little difficult i think for artists that don't necessarily want to share that much of their lives i know for me and i respect that yeah, absolutely yeah. and and it, for everyone it's, it's different right uh a lot of people want to lead with the music or they don't want to share that much but yeah. when, they have to share something yeah and, and, if, <laughs> and, if, and if they're not sharing that much of the recording what what is it they can share? Um, right. But at the end of the day, social media is is king. Um, but what's what's interesting? It's like you look at Fetty Wap, hit record comes out. You know, six months later, five million followers. Yeah. Alessia Cara, you look at her hit record came out. The socials didn't explode. Now socials aren't exploding like they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and like people tour quote unquote bigger than their social media. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they may only have thirty thousand followers on Instagram, but. They're selling out Brooklyn Steel or, you know, 1,200 right. cap rooms around the country. Yeah. You just yeah. need to be, you, you, you need to be consistent. Um, yeah. And you need to just be human and, and be vulnerable if you're comfortable with that. But it, but it's interesting. I'm excited to see how people break if their artists really refuse to be that vulnerable and, and use socials. Yeah. Um, is, it, is it more, if I was in that situation, what I would say um, let's make three pieces of content, but make them super premium. Let's make three right. 45 minute, right. like, you know, um, let's make them, whether, even if it's the homie shooting it, let's make it seem like this is a, a, a Netflix premiere. You right. know, let's make yeah, yeah. a huge deal out of it. Um, that's something John Bellion does really well. He, you know, he took some time off from social, but he would, he was crafting this whole animated vision and he, you know, invested a ton of his own money and um, he wanted to reinvent single art. And if you look on his Instagram, uh, he put 10 for every song in his album. It's a 10 to 20 second vignette of Pixar level animated content. Um, and you're going to see in three years, that's going to be what single art is today. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's been out there. So you should have seen it. My bad. I, sh- I should have got it to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think there's also like a lot of uh, opportunity and in, in cross promotion, um, whether it be with brands and people talk all the game about brands and stuff, but you really need the brand to believe in it, to work together, to potentially break an artist, mm-hmm. develop an artist. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm excited for what's next. And, uh, you know, it should always come from the artist. I don't believe in the managers really pushing their personal brand. I don't mm-hmm. really, I believe in the success is all of the artists. I, I believe that the credit is all to them. Um, yeah. You know, it, 
like I said, the work is done behind the computer screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm freaking out that I'm on camera. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. But uh, Word. I think it was, it's, it's, it's an important year for 2018, uh, important year for music in 2018, but it's becoming, even though the value of the master has increased, it's becoming more and more difficult because so many people are getting into it. Totally. Yeah. That, we had a conversation like that with, uh, Derek Rowe, another guest on the podcast, about how it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, obviously, it's like it gives artists a unique opportunity to be able to create because there's less gatekeepers and they can create their own means of access to potential fans. But because of the those barriers are down, it also just drastically increases supply. So it's <laughs> yeah. breakthrough is stuff. Yeah, but, he was saying these uh these Spotify playlists. By the time you like something and reach out to the artist, they could already have a fucking record deal. <laughs> Like by the time they're on a playlist, and you're like, oh, this is a new artist. Like, oh, they're already signed, which literally just happened to me three days ago. I was like, yo, this artist is tight. And apparently there was already a bidding war for him before he even dropped a record. Wild. Wow, like, yeah, there's bidding what? wars for artists that have no music out. I'm yeah, like, yo, how are you going like, to put $5 million behind an artist? <laughs> I don't even, you never even put a song out. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's crazy. But, but that's the game. And, and at the, you know, venture capitalism at the end of the day. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. the same shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look for the home runs. Look for the home runs. But, uh, you know, Hitting consistent singles and, and doubles is why, you know, certain labels are ahead of others. Totally, mm-hmm. totally. Well, Harrison, brother, we covered Appreciate a lot of beautiful yeah. ground, man. Thank you so much for coming out today. Glad the ground is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you guys. Yeah, Definitely. thank Cheers. you. We out. Appreciate it. Well, hey, man, that was a super dope episode. Hands down, man. Incredible. I think one thing that he talked about was just working and being able to work before you're monetarily compensated. I mean, I know at least being in New York, being in the music industry, majoring in the music business, I think a lot of people, especially people my age, think you're just supposed to join it and get rich quick. But Harrison put in the work. He put in the work before he knew what was going to come from it. And I think that's why he's still such a boss today is because he still has that mindset. For sure. And in that same vein, too, I mean, putting in the work when it comes to creating long term genuine relationships with other people. I mean, who knows uh, what your friend will be doing five years from now. Do good work. Have a reputation of consistent, high-quality output, I think. uh, And beyond that, too, care about other people, right? I mean, send those thank you notes. I think what the story he shared of how uh, they make sure to send out holiday cards to various people in their network and how he will take and treat people out to dinner. I mean, it's not using people, it's creating genuine relationships. I mean, this is largely a relationship business, so that's that's huge. Another aspect that really, really stood out to me here is I think just his ruthless execution. I mean, there's this notion of being a business operator and I think he truly is a fantastic operator. It's one thing to have great ideas, but the most important fact beyond that is being able to execute upon those ideas. And I think a lot of people, you can have the best ideas in the world, but if you're not executing upon them and doing so well and doing so quickly, uh, you're not going to be able to achieve the dreams that you have. Well said. So I think as always, uh, if you guys fucked with Harrison, be sure to follow him on social media. Just search Harrison Remler, R-E-M-L-E-R, and you'll find him. And beyond that, if you want to let us uh, let us know what you like about the show, reviews go a long way in helping us learn, uh, learn about what you like, what you don't like. And whenever you leave a review, it also helps us get more exposure to other people that might find value in this. So if there's another person that you think would like to hear this, don't hesitate to send it. As always, we're truly grateful for your support. Until next time, we out.